Hello and welcome to Building Local Power. I'm Stacy Mitchell of the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. Today on the show, our guest is Joe Maxwell. Joe is a former lieutenant governor of Missouri. He ran and won that office in 2000 and served for a four-year term. Before that, he was in the Missouri legislature for about a decade. Today, Joe is the executive director of the Organization for Competitive Markets, a national nonprofit public policy and advocacy organization that represents family farmers and rural America in the fight against corporate agribusiness monopolies. He also recently helped to found uh, something called Family Farm Action, which we'll talk more about. Joe is a fourth-generation family hog farmer in the northeastern part of Missouri, and he joins us today from his home in Mexico, Missouri. Joe, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's great to be on. We appreciate the opportunity. So I want to start with a campaign that you helped run last year in the neighboring state of Oklahoma. And this was a ballot initiative to enact something called right-to-farm legislation. And right-to-farm sounds like a good thing, and it sounds like something that people in an agricultural state like Oklahoma would be in favor of. And in fact, I think polling about a year before the vote showed that uh, voters favored it by a 64 to 15 percent margin. So I was wondering if you could talk about what was this right to farm measure all about and why did you get involved in trying to defeat it? Well, right to farm clearly, as you stated, Stacey, sounds great. But what uh, the corporate ag interests uh, that control the marketplace and, and, and abuse the market uh, want to do is take a great-sounding name like Right to Farm and use that to pass a constitutional amendment in the state of Oklahoma that would give corporations the same rights as individuals and the same level of protection as is the Bill of Rights. Uh, so the same right as freedom of speech, the right to bear arms, uh, freedom of religion. And what it said was is that no legislature or the people could abridge their right to farm the way they wanted to uh, without a compelling state interest. So we felt as farmers across the country, an organization for competitive markets has many members in Oklahoma. Our board member, former state senator Paul Meggy, is there. We really felt that we had to stand up and fight in spite of the fact that early polling said that there wasn't any way we could win. So how did you go about winning? Because my, my understanding is that the, that you won basically in a landslide and won all of the state's congressional districts. Uh, how did you turn things around? Well, first, I think just standing up. I think too often in, in our agricultural communities, you know, our small family farmers and ranchers, have just been beaten about the head and shoulders so much, whether that's in the marketplace or, uh, you know, out there in their community. Sometimes when big ag comes in, uh, they just feel like that their voice doesn't matter. And even the average citizen or average voter in America oftentimes will say, well, it just doesn't matter. It's not going to make a difference. These big corporations, they always win. It just doesn't make a difference. Our just standing up and saying enough's enough, we're not going to let corporations be in the Bill of Rights that protects individuals' rights. Uh, and so we stood up, and before we knew it, others were joining and felt empowered uh, to take a position against corporate ag. And then uh, the rest is kind of history, as they say. We beat them 60% to 40%, and we won in every congressional district. So I want to return to politics, but first... 
I want to ask you about what's happening in rural America and particularly to our farmers. OCM uh, put out a report in August, a policy brief, and it has some truly astonishing statistics in it. Uh, One that just caught my eye. Uh, In 1987, the U.S. had about 250,000 hog farms across the country, and the median size of those farms was about 1,200 hogs per farm. Today, three quarters of those farms are gone. We're down to about 63 hog farms. And the median size is now 40,000 hogs, which, you know, is the size of a city. I I have trouble even picturing what, what that's like. What is driving this trend of so many farmers going out of business and the farms that are left being so much larger than they used to be? Yeah, there's 63,000 hog farms left in America. When my brother and I, I have a twin brother, when we started farming, there were 670,000 hog farmers in America. So to me, in my farming life, I've seen over 91% of the hog farmers driven off the farm and out of business. And what's happened? Uh, We had uh, uh, several administrations, Republican and Democrat, uh, that have allowed corporations to become too big for the marketplace to work. They control that market, they're able to manipulate that market, and they're able to drive that farmer from the land. During some of the worst hog price crises, uh, we saw family farmers getting, uh, in 1998, got eight cents a pound for a hog, and the pork chop at the retail grocery store didn't drop a penny. How can that be, folks will say? But when you only have two or three people buying and selling pork in the United States, they can do whatever they want. They collude, uh, they uh, drive the price down for the farmer, and drive the price up for the consumer. And so that's what's happened in America. Over 60% of the market in the hog market is controlled by four corporations. The largest one in America is Smithfield. China owns, the country of China invested uh, to buy and own the largest pork producer and pig producer in the United States, Smithfield. JBS, which is Brazilian, using what we believe is illegal loans and manipulation of, of, of stock prices, purchased uh, the pork division of Cargill. That's either the second or third largest pork producer in the United States. So when you look at it, these companies that are abusing and driving farmers from the land that are screwing the consumer by overcharging them. They're not even U.S. corporations anymore. They're foreign corporations getting away with stealing from farmers and consumers. And this trend towards consolidation, which you note is catches farmers in both in both directions. I mean, not only are they uh, selling into markets that are highly consolidated where they may have only one or two or three choices for companies that are competing to buy uh, their output, but they're also having to buy the seeds and other inputs that they need uh, from other monopolies that are highly consolidated. And, And we see this trend continuing despite the fact that it's such an an already consolidated industry. We've got a big merger on the table right now, uh, Bayer and Monsanto, which I understand if that goes through, we could end up with just three companies that control 80% of the U.S. seed supply. 
that's astonishing. Um, and and I am amazed that regulators are even entertaining such a merger. Uh, let me start by Stacy saying you're exactly right. And you know that the stack and the deck is just stacked against family farmers, small businesses, and the consumer in America. Because our government, uh, since Ronald Reagan, all the way through Clinton, all the Democrats and Republicans, have really just been in bed uh, with the concept that big is better. Uh, they've not uh, enforced the Clayton and Sherman Acts and the Packers and Stockyards Acts. They've appointed judges that have actually watered those marketplace safeguards down. And today, the farmer's caught in the middle, just as you described. Uh, they, we want to sell our product, but the fundamentals no longer work because there's really not anybody on the other side but one company offering you a price. Now with these acquisitions and mergers on the seed and chemical side, we're going to see three companies in the world. Note that Monsanto, which I've not always been a fan of, but at least it was U.S., is getting ready to be merged and bought out by Bayer, a foreign corporation. And if you look at these purchases and these acquisitions and mergers on the input side, again, it's the story of foreign corporations controlling the price uh, that farmers have to pay. And they gouge that farmer on the input side, and the other side, these foreign corp multinational corporations drive down the price, leaving the farmer very little options other than to become a contract grower for those companies, a surf on their own land, or get out of business. Uh, and consumers are harmed because when there's too few people actually manufacturing and selling food products in the marketplace, they're colluding. Uh, that is evidence. There's two cases going on right now in the chicken industry uh, where the evidence is pretty clear uh, that the largest processors of poultry have been colluding on price and, and screwing this consumer out of about a dollar ten per chicken. Uh, so you can think about the billions of dollars that the consumers had to pay because the market is not working. Uh, well, there is hope, and we are excited uh, at OCM. We've been at, we're a 19-year-old old organization. We've never seen a better time. We've got Senator Grassley as the chair of judiciary, uh, and Senator Lee as the chair of the subcommittee on antitrust, both of them, uh, last year during two U.S. Senate hearings said enough's enough. Senator Grassley actually called these acquisitions and mergers tsunamis. And at the same time, we just saw uh, Senator Warren and, and the Democrats come out with the Better Deal, which has a platform against monopolies. So we're encouraged when you have folks like Senator Warren on one side and Senator Lee on the other, and there's probably not much anyone else that can be that far apart ideology-wise, coming together on an issue, we are encouraged uh, that we can, if the people will speak up, just like we did in Oklahoma. Uh, we're not alone. Uh, we just need to join together and let our voice be heard and say enough's enough. Whether you're a consumer or a farmer, it's time to end this big is better concept, and we need to have justice in Washington, D.C. It seems like part of the reason that we haven't gotten that justice as people in recent years is that there's not a lot of competition in the political parties, right? I mean, we've been talking about competition uh, in the market, 
But our country, you know, increasingly most Americans live in places that are either very blue or very red, and the other party isn't doing a very viable job of competing for their votes. Um, you're a Democrat in a state that is, Missouri is typically a red state, and certainly rural areas tend to be quite red these days. But you contend that Democrats can compete in rural areas and win, and that they can do that by actually speaking to these issues. Can you talk some about that? I did launch a uh, 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 sister organization, MCM, a C4. Uh, a C4, as the president of Family Farm Action, we can speak uh, about politics. Uh, there's no doubt that the Democrat Party, in, in regards to economic uh, issues, uh, the only real difference over the past several decades is which Goldman Sachs executive is going to be the head of the Treasury or the Department of Commerce. There's no real debate about what the economic direction uh, and future should be for America and for its citizens, its companies, its small businesses, its family farmers and ranchers. So there's not been a real debate out there uh, uh, in regards to which what economic direction we should go. I think Democrats have failed. I think we failed the people. Uh, I uh, worked on a bipartisan basis. I just got through bragging on uh, Senator Grassley and Senator Lee. But as it relates to the Democrats and the Democrat Party, I think they have failed time and time again to hold up what their party was founded on. Uh, you may recall in 1792, uh, we, we had uh, Thomas Jefferson and, and Madison join together uh, because they wanted to speak out against concentration. They wanted to speak out against the national bank and the concentration of wealth in this country. And they formed uh, the Democrat Party, the the years of uh, the little guy policies of the Democrats. Uh, those days uh, have, are gone. Uh, we are encouraging Democrats to go back to their roots. Uh, we're encouraged because we do see Republicans uh, moving uh, as a Republican, not necessarily the state party, but individual elected Republicans uh, wanting to right this injustice. And if the Democrat Party will join in, we really believe we can have true economic justice for everyone in this country. You're listening to Joe Maxwell, Executive Director of the Organization for Competitive Markets and former Lieutenant Governor of the State of Missouri. I'm Stacy Mitchell with the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. We'll be right back after a short break. If you enjoy this podcast, please consider making a donation to the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. Your financial support not only underwrites this podcast and helps keep it ad-free, but it also helps us produce all of the research and resources that we make available on our website and all of the technical assistance we provide to policymakers and citizens. Every year, ILSR's small staff helps hundreds of communities challenge monopoly power and rebuild their local economies. So please take a minute and go to ILSR.org and click on the Donate button. That's ILSR.org. And if making a donation isn't something you can do right now, please consider helping us in other ways. One great thing you could do is rate and review this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Ratings help us reach a wider audience, so it's hugely helpful when you do that. Thanks. One of the trends that we have seen as the economy has grown increasingly consolidated and as politicians have 
ignored in many cases that consolidation uh, and what's happening across the country is that there's this growing geographic divergence. There are a handful of cities, uh, mainly on the coast, that have been doing fairly well. But then when we look across uh, much of the country, the rural areas, the small towns, uh, the heartland cities, they're falling behind. There's growing poverty, very precarious employment, communities and institutions are, are frayed, and there's a lot of despair in those places. Um, as you look to growing numbers of uh, elected officials and people running for office who are beginning to speak to these issues, um, this issue of having an economy that works for people where there's real opportunity, where farmers and small businesses and workers can sell their produce and sell their labor and get a fair price because there's competition. Um, when you see Senator Warren and uh, Senator Lee and other folks who are beginning to talk about this, what are the kinds of policies that OCM believes that, that we need to adopt in order to uh, correct this problem and, and bring the whole country you know, up? You know, I think that you characterize it well. You know, we see this as, as just a fundamental value to how our country works and a, a fundamental issue. Our country is great because uh, we work hard and we should receive a benefit for our toil. Uh, if we have an idea, we should be able to take that idea to fruition and commercialize it and benefit from our intellect and our talents and our skills. And as such, we should be able to hire uh, good workers uh, within uh, working men and women within our communities and give them livable wages and opportunities for health care and an opportunity to prosper. What happens when there's concentration is this handful of companies have such a stranglehold on the economy, on the markets, that they can just abuse that opportunity. They can deny small businesses the opportunity. You take in the seed industry, uh, we mentioned the inputs. Look at the number of small businessmen and women that have been driven out uh, of their business uh, in the seed uh, side of inputs. But the same is true on small manufacturers within our communities or, or look in Pennsylvania at the industrial belt at, at how concentration and globalization has driven men and women uh, off the line uh, uh, at the workplace, at the, at the uh, company, and, and off into the unemployment lines. And, and now they say, well, unemployment you know, is, is, is the lowest it's been in so long. Yeah, that's because people are hustling two or three jobs just to feed the kids. There's just no justice in that, and it goes against the very values and ideals of this country and that was given to us through our economic policy. OCM believes the first and foremost thing is that we have to enforce the laws that are on the books. There are uh, Back when we had the big trusts, uh, the steel trust, the, the whiskey trust, the packer trust, all these trusts, they'd have corporations and they had these trusts. There was a guy by the name of Teddy Roosevelt, who later became president, that was the original trust buster. He got it, a Republican uh, president, uh, former governor of New York, and he said, I'm going to bust those trusts because I'm going to give people opportunity. And that began a wave from his era all the way through 1921 where laws were passed to say, look, you've got to have safeguards in the marketplace because ultimately if, if you just let the biggest win, they're going to abuse the people 
They're going to abuse the working families. They're going to abuse the farmers. They're going to abuse the small businesses. Second, on these acquisitions and mergers, our Department of Justice, uh, they need not only to enforce the current laws, but they also need to have additional tools to be able to look back on acquisitions and mergers to ensure that the results that the companies committed to the people of this country, that they were going to result in more jobs, more economic growth if they allowed the merger, that those companies are delivering on those promises. And if not, the Department of Justice needs the teeth uh, in the law so they can fine or disrupt that company that they allowed to go forward. We need to ensure in the Packers and Stockyard Act for farmers, Packers and Stockyard, that's the antitrust laws that protect farmers. When it was passed in 1921, it was called the Farmer's Bill of Rights. We need to ensure that it continues to protect farmers against predatory and retaliatory practices. Right now, if a chicken contract grower speaks out against the company, they lose their contract and they therefore go bankrupt and lose their family farm. No company should have a right to retaliate against someone because of their free speech uh, rights in this country. But yet that goes on, and we need to strengthen those laws and reinstate those laws. Those would be the priorities that OCM says we should go after first, and we call on every elected official to do so, and we call on every citizen as family farm action, which is our political arm, we call on every citizen to hold that elected official accountable if they don't stand up for people and they don't stand up for economic justice, then throw their butts out in this next cycle. That's interesting that the Packers and Stockyards Act used to be called the Farmer's Bill of Rights. I'm curious if you know how that changed. First, it's, it, note that uh, uh, Sherman and Clayton Act, which are the general uh, marketplace safeguard laws that, that were in place to break up those that huge concentration of those trusts, uh, they're over on DOJ's side and, and are enforced on that side. Packers and Stockyards Act was actually given over to the Department of, uh, of USDA, Department of Agriculture, because it was to represent, as opposed to protect the market, as the other safeguards do, its primary purpose was to protect the farmer against the abuses in the marketplace. So it was an individual rights concept that individual producers should have protection. Farmers just do not have the economic power. They raise something, and instead of setting the price for their pig, their calf, the corn, the soybeans, cotton, whatever it might be, they have to hold it up to the marketplace and say, how much will you give it? Give me for this? Therefore, the, the understanding was that they would need protections because they would be very vulnerable in that type of a market. It was shortly after that that several Supreme Court decisions came down that began to weaken that law. Finally, in 2005, the Supreme Court ruled in favor of the corporations and and took all the rights away from the farmer and said the farmers not only had to show harm to themselves, but they had to show harm to the general marketplace. Well, no farmer can do that. How do they get the resources to hire the, those economists that have to come in and testify? Where do they get the money to hire the lawyers to, to take on a big corporation uh, which has millions and millions of dollars that they can spend on attorneys? So it, it was over time, about 2005, the courts uh, made that final ruling, and we've been pushing to pass the GIPSA rules. On the 19th of October, the, the, the uh, USDA will close out uh, their decision of whether or not we will have those original safeguards put back in the law. And we call on Secretary Purdue 
uh, to do the right thing for Americans, for the consumers, and mostly for U.S. family farmers and ranchers uh, by, uh, by by finalizing those rules. Gypsy's the Grain Inspector st- uh, Packard Stockyard Administration. It sounds like in 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 a way that this that the Farmers Bill of Rights, when it was passed in 1921, was in keeping with how we, throughout much of our history, approached anti-monopoly. Was that we recognized that the goal was to protect people in the marketplace in all of their capacities, not just as consumers, but as producers and workers and people who sold labor, sold goods, and needed a fair marketplace in order to get a fair price and a fair income. In the 1980s, we began to move away from that and to focus narrowly on the idea of efficiency and consumer welfare, you know, with bigger companies are probably better because they're more efficient. And we threw out a lot of those, you know, our, our enforcement of antitrust dismissed a lot of those concerns about producers. And it sounds like in some ways that's what has happened with the Farmer's Bill of Rights, the the Packers and Stockyards, is that its original intention was at odds with this new new ideology and that over time it has been, uh, its enforcement has been altered to fit the ideology and not the original intent. Absolutely. And you bring up the efficiency rule, and it sounds great. Uh, right after President Reagan was elected, one individual in his administration, in the Department of Justice, on their own, unilaterally, without act of Congress or executive order, changed the guidelines for how acquisitions and mergers would be governed. And the definition had been the definition for antitrust was competition. You would look at the whether or not there was actually a market. Could people compete? Would they have a fair chance to enter the market space? Would the economy continue to drive? That one person unilaterally said, no, it needs to be about efficiency. If this country can drive more efficiency, then the consumer benefits because they'll get a lower price. Now, I want to tell you something. That sounds just great. But those big companies, they don't give a hoot about the consumer. When they drive those efficiencies, have those acquisitions and mergers, lay off people, stop the ingenuity or the research and development, do they put that lower the price of those goods to consumers? Absolutely not. What they do is put that money in their pockets and go home laughing all the way because of that change. Every president since Ronald Reagan, Democrat or Republican, has has kept that rule, that guideline in place, and it has denies the market the opportunity to work for the benefit of the consumers, the businesses, the farmers, the ranchers, and for the people. So OCM is fighting to restore anti-monopoly policies, and particularly the Farmers' Bill of Rights as it was originally intended in, in 1921. That's at the federal level. Um, as someone who worked for a long time in state government, what is it that you think local and state officials should be doing on this issue? Well, most states uh, also have rules and regulations, uh, statutes governing uh, the marketplace. I think all 50 states, the attorney generals in those states can join in uh, with the Department of Justice and have a right on behalf of the citizens of their state to wade in on these acquisitions and mergers. So at the state level, I did the same thing I'm doing now at the federal level. I encourage those policies to be enforced. 
I encourage the Attorney General of my home state, and I hope that every one of you encourages your Attorney General to enforce uh, the standards and the safeguards that are in place to allow the market to work for all people. It's unfair to the workers. Uh, when there's too few companies controlling everything, they don't care about the workers. They set the price they pay the workers. They set the price they pay the farmers, and they set the high price the consumers have to pay for their goods. And everybody uh, has a reason to join this fight and demand economic justice for everyone in America. So OCM is a nonprofit uh, research and public policy organization, and you've also been involved recently, as we've touched on, with helping to launch Family Farm Action, which is a C4, a national political uh, action uh, organization that, as I understand it, is aiming to help support candidates who are uh, strong on uh, these issues. Uh, do, are you seeing more candidates, you know, particularly uh, across rural America, who are talking about these things on the campaign trail? What's the outlook? Do you think for having this be part of uh, part of our elections? I think what's important to understand is, is a lot of organizations like OCM, I'm very proud to be its executive director. We do great work on determining, you know, doing our research. Angela Huffman on our team uh, put out that policy brief that you referenced. But we have to draw the line because as a nonprofit C3, we cannot engage politically. We're limited in how much we can walk the halls of the state capitol or the federal capitol. But when we look at big ag, when we look at corporate ag, when we look at these multinational corporations, they have team after team of special interest lobbyists lobbying our elected officials. So Family Farm Action is a C4 organization, and we're able uh, to lobby uh, the halls of the states and of the capital. And we're also able to politically uh, engage uh, out there in campaigns. Uh, we felt very strongly as a team coming together with Family Farm Action that we needed to give political muscle and to join in with folks like the National Farmers Union, who's, who's a partner who also lobbies, to join in with a National Sustainable Ag Coalition who has a great team. We, we felt we needed to add additional political voice. What's the outlook? Well, we think uh, that it's great. Our experience in Oklahoma when we started this uh, podcast off, uh, uh, what we knew, knew then was that somebody had to stand up. What we know today is the same is true if we're going to get something done about this concentration and abuse in the marketplace and abuse to consumers and farmers. So Family Farm Action is out looking for candidates, and they're out there. We're delighted with uh, Austin Ferrick up in, uh, up in uh, Iowa 3rd District. Uh, there was just a national story done on him. We're delighted with former Undersecretary, uh, Deputy Undersecretary Lillian Salerno, who's announced uh, for Congress down in the Dallas area. Uh, we're delighted with uh, Drew Edmondson, announced and is running for governor in Oklahoma. Uh, there are candidates around uh, this country uh, that are speaking up and demanding economic justice for all citizens, uh, regardless of where they live, uh, whether that's rural or urban or suburban, regardless of, of uh, the color of their skin or the faith that they believe in. We believe America and those candidates believe that in America we stand for the basic principle and the value that everybody should have the right and opportunity to prosper in a great country like America. Joe, this has been a great conversation. I really appreciate you taking the time out today. I want to close by asking you if you have a reading recommendation, something that you've come across recently that uh, you think our listeners uh, might enjoy or benefit from. I think there's two books uh, 
I would recommend. First, uh, I'll, I'll go with Chris Leonard's The Meat Racket. Been out a couple of years, but does a tremendous job of just talking about this vertical integration and concentration of power, focusing mostly on the poultry industry, but it, it really speaks to all sectors of agriculture and the abuses that are there. I think Barry Lynn, uh, someone I work with, he's an advisor on OCM. He's a board member of Family Farm Action. Barry Lynn's book, uh, Cornered, is a great read uh, for understanding uh, this overall monopoly and the power of those monopolies. I think also uh, just Google a guy by the name of Matt Stoller. Uh, Matt's a tremendous uh, reporter, a writer, uh, has many articles out there. Uh, uh, Leah Douglas is another name uh, that does a tremendous job of writing and capturing uh, and being able to speak to these most complicated issues in ways in which almost any of your listeners will quickly grasp and say, oh, my gosh, this is going on in America. Why? Joe, thanks so much for the time today. You bet. Thank you for tuning into this episode of Building Local Power. You can find links to what we discussed today by going to our website, ilsr.org, and clicking on the show page for this episode. That's ilsr.org. While you're there, you can sign up for one of our newsletters and connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. And once again, please help us by rating this podcast and sharing it with your friends. This show is produced by Lisa Gonzalez and Nick Stumo-Langer. Our theme music is Funk Interlude by Dysfunction Al. For the Institute for Local Self-Reliance, I'm Stacey Mitchell. I hope you'll join us again in two weeks for the next episode of Building Local Power.